0: Welcome to It's Who You Know, the podcast, bridging the gap between Jewish leaders and those who follow them. Gain insight from Jewish professionals who make the decisions that influence your Jewish world. Welcome to It's Who You Know, the podcast. This is your host, Michelle W. Malkin. And my guest tonight is Dara Clarfield. And she is the managing director of DRG, Executive Search Consultants for the nonprofit sector. She's been with DRG since 2011 and brings with her a plethora of experience with formal and informal Jewish education communities, which allows her to head up the executive searches for a lot of heads of school and principals of day school, Jewish community centers, and she works very closely with those communities to really find a good fit. And what made me want to bring her on the program today is when I first came to New York and started doing my searches I saw this name DRG pop-up um, every time I opened a search for an executive and I asked a few people what is this uh, organization that <laughs> does all these searches and and finds all these executives and so as I thought about things that might be helpful or interesting to our audience I really wanted to be able to speak with somebody about the work of filling these high-level, positions. So Dara, thank you so much for coming on the program. Thank you for having me. Of course, I'd love to just start with your own personal journey, how you got to where you are in your career, and any influences that might have pushed you in that particular direction.
1: So I was raised in a very involved Jewish family in Westchester, a little bit north of New York City. Our friends and community members were really a part of of our larger family and certainly the fabric of every day of our life. I came to Maryland Hillel at a time of transition where they were in between directors and Maryland, while it had 6,000 Jews and 24,000 undergraduate students on campus, the number of Jews who were highly affiliated with the Hillel was very low. And during that transition time, I had a lot of opportunity to lead and to hone and craft my leadership skills as a student. And I ended up doing an internship for National Hill where I was able to learn about all of the operational sides of the Jewish community with development, with more significant programming for my peers, with um, the opportunity to sort of straddle being a professional or a paraprofessional as it were. And I think one of the most important things that we did was I was the student representative on the search committee to hire a new executive director for the Hillel. There you go. You already knew what you were going to (laughs) do right there. So I don't know that I actually put that all together until much later on in my life, but I loved being a part of something that we were growing and developing and building. And I loved the idea of finding a professional or helping to find a professional that was going to help us to lead and grow a community that I cared so deeply about. I ended up staying in Washington, D.C. after I graduated. I went to work for a year for the Punny Punning program, which was a program that brought high school students from across North America to Washington, D.C. And during the course of that tenure there, I was trying to figure out what, what was my next step. And Sid Schwartz, who was the founder of the program, was very influential for me in kind of thinking about what were the constructs of leadership that... Significant Jewish leaders would need to have and own and hone as a craft to be involved in the Jewish community. And one of the things that I learned from him was that one of the most important things about being a Jewish leader is really having a very profound sense of Jewish literacy. And to be completely honest, I was 22 years old. I was young. I didn't have a tremendous amount of direction. And I was thinking, where can I go to get? You know, a profound sense of Jewish literacy that could be the basis for all of the leadership that I would hope to be able to obtain as a as a Jewish professional. And at that time, the Jewish community has gone through a number of cycles of profiles for professionals that they felt were best equipped to serve and lead in the Jewish community. Sort of the old model, half a generation above me, were really all social workers or MSWs. Um, At the time that I entered. Into rabbinical school to sort of obtain that sense of Jewish literacy, being a rabbi was one of the ways that people would allow professionals to get to the top of their game. Unfortunately, I think that the tide shifted a little bit while I was there and the community began to think about what are the business skills that people would need also to leave and that it was beyond the Jewish literacy piece. I think Hillel was a profound example of this because We had a lot of rabbis who were running Hillel's because that made sense for a lot of years. But Hillel really transformed itself and became an organization that was infusing itself with both programs and innovation and projects to serve a wide range of students on campus. They started this whole notion of engagement, really, in the Jewish community. It became very clear that, both sets of skills were needed, both the Judaic literacy and the content and also the business skills, because rabbis who were not trained in that in rabbinical school were running these institutions which had buildings and budgets and program dollars and operational needs and all kinds of things that might fall under management. And I think the community responded appropriately by allowing some kinds of professionalized uh, degree programs to sort of pop up all over the place. Some had existed beforehand, but you could really sense a shift sort of in the late 90s and the early 2000s that the community was really beginning to think about what were the right kinds of leadership skills that people would need in order to transform organizations in the Jewish community. And it was always about content, but it was also about leadership skills. It was becoming more and more about competencies in the areas of operations and strategic thinking and innovation and expansive thought um, and practice beyond the realm of content knowledge. Uh, And about halfway through rabbinical school was when I think I realized I wasn't sure why I was in rabbinical school anymore. Mm. And that perhaps I had made a mistake, but wasn't sure what else to do. So I finished the program. And when I graduated, I became the executive director of a very small nonprofit that doesn't exist anymore called the North American Alliance for Jewish Youth. I left that organization to have a second child. And right when I was about to give birth to my second son, I got a call from UJA Federation of New York, and they asked me if I'd be willing to take on a project part-time to develop a program that was funded by a former president of the Federation. And the goal was to develop a next generation of lay leadership for the Jewish community in New York. So I was the founding director of the Shapiro Family Fellowship at the UJA Federation of New York, which is now in its 10th year. And we had a great time developing a program that would allow these 20-somethings to really think critically about their relationship to Israel, their relationship to being Jewish, their relationship to their own personal profession, and sort of beginning to cultivate and grow them as the next generation of Jewish leadership for the New York UJA Federation. About five and a half years into that, I had had a third child, and I was working from home part-time on this project, which, by the way, was very progressive for UJA Federation, which had really historically been a bricks and mortar nine to five or eight to seven Mm
0: -hmm. kind of
1: place. And they were very kind and gracious to me. Deborah Josselow, who is now the chief program officer of UJA Federation of New York, was extremely thoughtful in the way in which she managed and guided my growth there, uh, particularly around work-life balance issues, which is an entirely different podcast Mm -hmm. that that we, we could talk about. But I was very lucky to have somebody who understood that I needed to do my work but that I could do a lot of it from home and that I had right. a young family and that we were developing, growing something. Mm-hmm. And it was a great job for me that I learned a tremendous amount about budgeting, about organizing, and it was a really nice way to run a project that was embedded in a larger organization. So I wasn't responsible to a board. I was responsible to one particular funder family and to a number of senior professionals at the Federation. But I didn't have to juggle all of the different pieces of managing constituencies of boards and funders and staff and, 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 which is, you know, complicated to do. And at that time in my life was not something that I was interested in with three very young children.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: So five and a half years into that job, my husband actually got an email from David E. Dell, the president of DRG. My husband had known David for a long time. And the email said something like, We're looking for somebody to work in the Jewish practice at DRG to join us. And if you ask me to recall what the rest of the email is, I have absolutely no idea. (laughs) And I will tell you that I had absolutely no idea what a recruitment firm did. I had no idea what DRG was or what it was about. I had never met David E. Dell, although he had placed my husband, so I knew of him. And I decided to send in a resume because I figured... Some of the things that he said in the job description were, do you like networking with people, which I do. Do you like being a connector, which I do. And do you love working with the Jewish community, which I do. Check,
0: check, check.
1: Exactly. So I went into a visit with David and had a great series of conversations with him and began my tenure at DRG. Kind of on a whim. I had absolutely no idea where the journey would take me or whether or not I'd be successful or happy or if it was doable. And the rest is sort of history. I'll be at DRG um, six years in September and became the managing director in January of this year.
0: Fantastic. Well, it's definitely a very wonderful arc. And we actually do talk a little bit in previous episodes about that work-life balance and in the trajectory of unfortunately women 's careers, the willingness for organizations to be flexible around those needs really allow for that ladder to continue for somebody who you know also might have other priorities, and the understanding and flexibility to say, "Yeah, you can do that at home, and then when that next opportunity right comes up you 're available and ready with the experience that you 've had to jump into that which is fantastic so i 'd love for you to talk a little bit about your process and what does it look like for you as much as you can dis- disclose? Uh, from soup to nuts, right? Somebody calls you up and says, All right, we've got a spot to fill. How do you work your magic?
1: That's a great question. And every instance is different. Every phone call is different. Every first phone call is different. I think that the overarching theme is that organizations call us when they feel like there's something not happening right at their organization and they come to the conclusion that it's probably talent-based. And sometimes they call us earlier on to say, we have this fantastic CEO, we love him or her, but we aren't quite sure how to help them to help us to get to the next phase. Sometimes we get phone calls to help us, to help them sort of litigate that issue, right? to decide, are they right? Are they wrong? What's the proof? Where's the evidence? And to help them decide whether or not they need to do a search. Sometimes they call us and say, We had a terrible experience with a senior professional and we had to help them out of the work and we want help to sort of reshape that. So our entry points are wide and varied. And by the way, sometimes we get calls from CEOs who are looking to hire chief program officers or chief development officers or chief operating officers to say, I don't know exactly what my skills are, but I can tell you that my job is way too expensive for me and I need somebody to help to come to support me in my work, or I have a hole in my leadership team and a need that I need to fill. And so it can really start in a bunch of places.
0: So when, because when I look at, right, executive search consultants, that's what I just think. I think you just fill positions and it sounds like the work is much more varied as just a trusted place to turn when you have these issues of staffing amongst your higher leadership.
1: So I think what makes DRG unique and one of the reasons that I've really come to love this work is because there's always a problem to solve at the beginning of every search, which is first we want to know what are the problems in the organization and how can we help the organization to understand and articulate What are those problems and challenges they're trying to address? Mm -hmm. So before we even talk about candidate or the position, we want to know where do you want this person to take you? If it's a chief development officer, we want to know what are the goals for the organization around the areas of development? If it's for a CEO, we want to spend a lot of time with the board, really understanding what are the goals for the next three to five years so that the CEO can take you there. Mm -hmm. So before we get there, we really have a deep forensic understanding of each of the organizations that we're partnering with and each of the searches. So a good bulk of the work before we even start with anything related to candidates is really about helping the organizations to be self-reflective about where they are in the spectrum of their history and where they want to go. And then we can start to have a conversation around What are the right kinds of skills that somebody will need to bring in order to help them to get to that next level, to achieve those goals, to identify what those benchmarks are? And those conversations are really critical. There have been a lot of conversations happening recently about the notion of shared expectations amongst boards and professionals. Mm -hmm. Part of our goal is to help boards to feel like they can be aligned with candidates who are coming in. So when candidates ask questions like, what is going to make me successful or how, do, how will I know I've been successful, that the answers from the board or from the organization or from the CEO hiring a CDO or COO are very clear. Before candidates even come into the picture, we push our clients to really think about those very difficult questions because lobbing people in is not going to solve a problem. Right. First, we need to name the problem. Then we need to figure out what's the best way to strategize to be able to get you to remediate the problem. And then we have to think about what are the kinds of skills that somebody needs to bring in order to fix that problem. And then we can talk about the kind of person that will be the fit to do this. What kinds of experience will they have in the Jewish community, and particularly in the Jewish education community, where I do a lot of work around the issue of Jewish day schools, for example what kinds of Jewish does this person need to be, Mm -hmm. right? What kind of Jewish sensibilities do they need to be? Kind
0: of Jewish literacy do they need to have. (laughs) What kind of Jewish literacy do they need to have? And by the way, do they need to be Jewish?
1: Right. So there are always those kinds of questions. And I think that part of our work is to ask those hard questions to the board and allow them to really look in the mirror and say, would we take somebody who's not Jewish to run our JCC? Would we take somebody who's not Jewish to run our day school, what kind of Jewish does this person have to come with, or what's the caliber of knowledge that they need to come with, you know, as a skill, but also as a thread running through their ability to be successful and to be a fit for the community.
0: I mean, if I were thinking of myself as a professional and I'm in a an organization or as a lay leader on a board, and I have to fill a spot, my either my executive director is not doing so great, or they're leaving, or they're retiring. These are not questions I think about, right? These are not the first things that I go to to do some internal thinking and internal processing. It's, uh, okay, where is that job description? Let's look at what it was. Let's go through and make changes. Okay, great. Let's push it out. Let's get this process going without doing some of that more internal thinking of really who this person is within the context of your organization and within your community and what kind of role does that person play outside of managing the staff, making office orders, right? dealing with the budget. These tachless pieces that of course are part of the job, but it seems like the process you're able to offer and go through with these organizations is pulling out what else. And I love what you said about how will I know when I'm successful as a question for someone being interviewed for a job to come in with that that understanding and that question. I think if I were to ask that Being interviewed, it would completely throw off the person interviewing me because I'd be like, I don't know. It seems like with your expertise, you really help these organizations hone in on that, which is fantastic.
1: I think also, Michelle, that one of the critical components to understand is that transitions are anxiety producing for us as individuals, for candidates when they're thinking about making a move, and all the more so for organizations when they're going through a leadership transition. There's a lot of anxiety for people's co-workers. There's a lot of anxiety around board leadership. Will we find the right person? And so a lot of organizations make the mistake of jumping to, let's just put a job description together and get it out there and try to interview people. Our job is to actually slow people down and to make them think critically about all of those pieces before they begin to talk about candidates. Let's talk about who we are and who we want to be, because that's what will ultimately. Drive candidates to having an honest conversation with a board or with a CEO to share those expectations and to make sure that you're getting the match for a shared set of roles and guidelines in terms of where you want to go. And I think that is a primary reason to use a search firm is for the guidance to sort of manage the anxiety around the transition and for all of the other reasons, which is to help you with pacing and timing, to be a very strong advocate. On behalf of your organization, to tell the compelling narrative and to tell the story of who you are, and to explain to candidates what the opportunity is, what the challenges are, in a very truthful and realistic voice. You know, the challenges are what the work is. And when candidates ask, What's my job? What do I do every day? And by the way, where will all that daily work lead? Where do they want me to get? That's really important for us to be able to help everybody to frame as they move through the process to be able to consistently ask those questions and to have them answered in a very thoughtful and I think singular way.
0: This is Michelle W. Malkin, host of It's Who You Know, the podcast. We've been listening to Derek Larfeld, Managing Director of DRG Executive Search. Our next guest is Drew Kugler, a leadership and communications consultant that's worked with a variety of Jewish organizations, mostly in the area of conflict management. Let's listen to a bit of our conversation.
2: But here's what's missing. And what is present in your example is at least somebody being menschy enough to show up face-to-face, and at least move in a direction of honesty. That's pretty good. Now, on my website, you'll you'll see I break this up, right? Into people who won't do anything. I call them the silent. People who will vent, who will find the friendly face. And then people who, sort of like the example you were talking, are what I call the honest people. They go in and they give their honest opinion, face-to-face. Yay. However, the fourth place is what is so rare. And the fourth place is where you go in, and here comes the key difference, you go in with a clear intention to engage the other person toward understanding their position.
0: That was Drew Kugler, leadership and communication consultant that we'll be hearing from in two weeks on our next episode. And for now, back to Dara. Have you ever come into a situation where either you say, there's just a lot (laughs) going on here, seems like you guys might need to hire a different consultant to help figure this out, or a situation where it's like, I don't think that you're actually looking for X. I think that you're actually looking for Y. So yes and yes.
1: Oftentimes, we will meet with an organization before we contract with them. And many times we have said to them, you're not ready for us yet. You need to make some Difficult decisions, or we can help you to make those difficult decisions, but it's going to be a longer on ramp to the search. And it really depends on a case by case basis. We're always looking for creative partners that we can say to organizations we know this consultant who's really excellent in this particular area. That's not in our wheelhouse to be able to prep you and we stay involved and connected with those people in order to sort of get the organization to a place where they need to do a search and they're ready to do a search. A lot of organizations, as I said, I think driven by the notion of anxiety and truthfully around the notion of need. Right. If nobody's sitting in that CEO chair, who's filling in? Lay leaders who don't have time. Other senior staff members who also don't have time, who are taping out, taking on multiple portfolios. And truthfully, a lot of times, and this is a systemic issue, I think, not just in the Jewish community, but broadly, this notion of building a bench of leadership or a leadership pipeline. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of organizations and a lot of CEOs have not historically spent time on that because they're very busy doing the work that they actually need to do and don't view that as a piece of their work. And more and more, I think, in the Jewish community, you know, the organization Leading Edge and a bunch of other organizations are raising people's consciousness and awareness and bringing that issue to the forefront of the notion of building that pipeline so that there isn't this anxiety around the transition, so that there isn't such a steep learning curve by grabbing somebody from another organization and expecting that they're going to come in with either a Rolodex of people that they can just quickly go to for development ask or to just sort of put them as the CEO and assume that everything that they've learned from being a CEO in a smaller shop or in a different kind of organization are all going to be transferable and getting them up and running. So leadership transitions are costly in terms of time for everybody involved. I think they're anxiety producing for the community of people who are touched by this leadership transition, and also they require a tremendous amount of patience from the organization, from the board, and from the candidates who have to recognize they can't change everything all at once, and that they really will probably need a year to learn, and a year to plan, and a year to implement when they first get going.
0: Right. I'm lucky enough to be having a conversation with Gali Cooks on one of our episodes to really talk about their, their research and their work. She's a DRG placement. Oh, fantastic. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and and a good friend to us at DRG and David E. Dale, the president of DRG, sits on their board. And we're very involved, not just Makes in sense, right? placement, but in thought leadership issues around this, particularly in the Jewish community, because those of us at DRG who work on the Jewish searches all come from a long history and experience of working in the Jewish community and care very deeply, not just about the work that we're doing, but about the overall growth and development and strengthening of the Jewish community. And so those kinds of things are very, very important to us.
0: I know that you talked a little bit about the difference and and the shift that I think a lot of people are aware from this Jewish literacy and social work to more of a professionalization in my own graduate work at HUC. Everybody got a social work degree and it was a communal service and that was how you got into Jewish community work. And now people are getting MBAs and people are getting, like myself, MPAs and far more specific skills, right, on budgeting and strategic I mean, how has the work changed either in your view or from what you've heard? And even as the, the pool of candidates that you see and the kinds of skills that they have, or even looking at, you know, gender issues, is there more women that are applying? Are they seemingly more qualified? Or does it seem like people are still looking for some vision of a man in that head role? Or other ways that maybe I have no idea about? And things have been changing over the years in this particular type of work.
1: It's a great question. I think there are a lot of questions in that question. So I'll I'll, I'll tackle tackle (laughs) one at a time. No, it's okay. We have a very interesting perch at DRG to be able to watch the talent transitions in the Jewish community. Sort of in real time as they're actually happening, and the conversations around who is placed in leadership positions and who positions themselves to be placed in these leadership positions. I have been in a number of search committee rooms where it's very clear that even if I bring a pool of candidates that are equally split with men and women who are of equal competency, that there are certain boards or certain models of leadership who are definitely more deferential to hiring a man, even if it's not overt in the conversation. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's something that's very important for me as a consultant to be able to point out and to call them on. I think amongst women, there is a tremendous talent pool of women out there who are poised, primed, and ready to take CEO roles. I actually think that the burden is on the organizations, and this is not just about women, but I think the burden is on the organizations to be able to construct roles for people that are within the limits of human capacity. Mm -hmm. And that's not an issue of women don't want to step into these CEO roles because they also have the primary responsibility of the kids or whatever it is. I think it's incumbent upon the search committees and the boards to understand that most of these big giant CEO roles are really too big for anybody to be able to handle in a very significant way without the right kind of support. And which is why I go back to how do I know I've been successful, right? How do we create a sense of shared expectation amongst our boards and our candidates so that the boards are interviewing people based on the understanding that this is a job for one person, right? And if it's not a job for one person, then they need to actually make two jobs. Or they have to be willing to say that of the 10 things that we must have the CEO candidate to do, we recognize that an outstanding candidate will have mastery in five of the 10 areas, Mm -hmm. will have proficiency in two additional of the 10 areas. And the three areas have the capacity to learn and grow. But in the meantime, we're going to be willing to park those issues because they're not of critical importance in the first couple of years. And or we're going to be able to buy supplemental help in the form of consultative services or hire additional staff or whatever it is in order to increase the ability for this person to be successful. I actually don't think that that's a gender question. I actually think that it is a communal question, which is what is our responsibility to our professionals writ large in terms of allowing them to take on these massive, massive roles? And I will say, I believe we're complicit in that also when we design position descriptions and everybody says to me, so after Moshe Rabbeinu comes and takes this job, although we're not sure he could actually do it. Or after you find me that magical unicorn who right. can do this job, although we're not sure you can actually do it, right? What's the real work here? So
0: the well, the notion that you're hiring somebody with the idea that there are Elements of the work that they can learn and grow into, not that they're coming in with these, like you mentioned, these 10 things that they can do everything and they'll know exactly what to do and how to do it, but to be conscious of where you can develop that person. You're not getting a whole complete package, but that you're getting really great skill sets that you're also going to develop. I don't think people think like that, (laughs) which is good that you do, because I, I just don't think that's conscious in that idea of any hiring. Absolutely. And I
1: agree that there has to be a continued and ever evolving notion of shared responsibility between the board leadership and the professionals to understand that there are limits to any one person's capacity, no matter what their gender is or who they are in terms of what they're doing. And so the expectations that a board can set for somebody in a CEO role in many ways will help to define their success. If you set the goalposts so wide that it's never possible for any person, no matter how experienced or or how smart or how thoughtful, to be able to get their arms around it, they're never going to be successful. So there has to really be somewhere in the middle where people are, where boards are willing to identify candidates where the work is sloppy and complicated and oftentimes difficult and challenging in the beginning, but that they provide the right kinds of support for that person to sort of wade their way through that difficult time and to help them to be a cheerleader and a support financially to them, to be a support for them in work-life balance to be a support for them, truthfully, just by offering kindness around the notion of saying to them, we understand that this work is challenging and we appreciate all of the hard work that you're doing. I think those kinds of things are very, very important. There's a way in which we think about compensation that also needs to be shifted. Obviously, the issue with men and women in terms of Pay is a huge problem. I've seen it up front a hundred times, although it's not overtly named in any of these rooms. It is definitely there. And it's my job to sort of get in the middle of that and ask people and sort of demand the understanding of why they want to pay one person X and another person Y to do the same job. And we push our clients on that. And we push our candidates on that to be able to come to a place where the package is both reflective of. How much the organization can actually pay based on their budget, right? Mm-hmm. And also on the notion that there should be compensation benefits and evaluative measures that are tied together so that people have the opportunity. To grow and develop the work that they're doing and to see some financial reward for it, much like in the for-profit sector. And more and more boards are thinking about those kinds of things. So you shouldn't work in the nonprofit sector 20-hour days, seven days a week, and all you get for it is a lot more grief and lay leaders who are saying to you more and more and more.
0: The thing is, you're not making it that the bonuses or the money are a motivator, but they're in the appreciation of, right? It's not that, you know, if you hit X, Y goal, you'll get X, Y, right? Tying it to performance and saying, wow, you really grew in this area. We really recognize that this particular project was difficult and you really brought us through it. You know, we're going to reward that with not only praise and appreciation, but a financial benefit as well.
1: The community, the Jewish community, I really believe needs to view itself with a sense of collective responsibility around being able to recruit and retain professionals. And one of the ways that I think retaining professionals is critical is sort of back to that basic notion of kindness. People want to be treated with kindness. People want to know that they're going to a great place to work, both on paper and in the ethos of the place. And they want to go to a place where they feel like their work is appreciated and valued and where there are people who are thinking about their career trajectory and are willing to give of themselves, especially at the early stages of somebody's career, even though they know that they may work and mentor and guide somebody for three, four, or five years, and then they may take all of their learning and go somewhere else in the Jewish community and continue to grow. It's an exceptional CEO or senior professional or lay leader who recognizes that the work and the sweat equity that they put into developing particularly young professionals is valuable to the whole community and is not just about the single agency that they serve, but is really about getting the whole Jewish community to move to a better place of more competency, of the ability to retain these top notch professionals, and to develop thought leaders at a very young age who are going to want to stay and work for the Jewish community, because that's really what we need, especially in the world we live in today.
0: Yeah, but even if it is selfish, right, then you've got somebody who's going into the world of a different organization who you know, has those skills in part because they worked with you, in part because they worked with your organization. Now they're going somewhere and being awesome somewhere else. They say, oh, wow, they're so awesome because they got all these skills and they were mentored. And now they're still a friend of your organization. Maybe they come to your events. Maybe they Money, you're, I mean, there seems to be a lot of, you know, benefits to, and then your reputation, right? And the larger Jewish community benefits from being able to grow and release, if you will, Jewish professionals in that pipeline and not look at, uh, there was a line in one of the E-Jewish philanthropy articles that it's been going around a bit, you know, we're human beings and not human doings. And I'm sure you've heard that. And as professionals, and I'm sure I'll talk to Gali a little more about this, but looking at it as a person and not just the task that they are performing. And I think this goes back to mentioning it before, that there is going to be things that that person is going to grow into and or that that person is going to make mistakes, right? They're not going to come in and be this saving grace of whatever your issues are, but you know, maybe they're going to come in if they don't have this, how will I know I'm successful? And they come in and they see that there's something wrong with your staff and they fix it and like, wait, we didn't want you to do that, right? We thought our staff was great. Why are you concentrating on our stuff? when we want you to concentrate on somewhere else and really setting those things? Like, Fantastic. So my next question since you know, our audience is really geared towards Jewish professionals all stages of their career. If we have Jewish professionals that this is what they want to do, they see the top and they say, that's where I'd like to be eventually. And as you mentioned, every organization has their own needs and their own things that they're looking for. So there probably isn't you know, oh, you should do X, Y, and Z and you'll get any executive job. But what should somebody be looking out for? What should somebody be thinking about as they're moving through their career if that's the kind of position they want to be qualified for eventually?
1: I think the single biggest factor in helping people to get where they want to go is to allow people the latitude to be able to develop a very secure sense of self of actually where they like their professional journey to take them. Meaning it's not just that somebody starts at the beginning and you know their North Star is becoming the CEO. There are people like that, and that's absolutely fine and appropriate. There is nothing wrong with somebody saying, "I'm really an excellent DOO. I'm really an excellent number two. I'm really the best possible, whatever it is, and I want to be the best version of my professional self. In the correct context. So I think a lot of it is actually about people understanding themselves and really where they want to end up. And I think there's no specific formula for that, but I'm pretty sure that it has a piece of passion involved, right? And a piece of self-fulfillment and a piece of happiness involved. I'm a big believer that people should like what they do. That doesn't always mean it has to be easy all the time. In fact, I think that people are more able to handle Challenging situations in contexts in which they feel like they really belong and they value their purpose in the organization, no matter what the challenge is. And that if they don't value the organization and the work that they do broadly, or it's too big for them because that's just not who they are, or where they want to be, that's when the challenges subsume you. And people who are best positioned to overcome challenges or to work through them and to so get people to sort of join them on a journey are people who really understand what their direction is, where their course is, and what their ultimate goal is. And I think goals can change and shift. As you get older and you learn from different people, you may decide one day in your 50s, now I'm ready to be a CEO, right? Whereas beforehand, that wasn't really something that you were considering or interested in. And there are people who come out of college thinking, I want to be a CEO, and I'm on that path, and I'm going to figure out how to get So
0: I don't think there are any absolutes. Or then they get into the field and they say, oh, no, no, (laughs) I don't want to do that. Correct.
1: Um, I go back to the notion of career lattices, right, which may be something that's overused instead of ladders. But I really do believe that people have multiple entry points and pathways to getting where they want to go. And getting where they want to go doesn't necessarily mean to be at the top. It really needs to be at a place where you have a tremendous amount of satisfaction and self-fulfillment. And those things evolve. There are people who are in organizations five, six, seven, eight years who love every minute of it. And only towards the end of their tenure do they realize, okay, I think I've actually done everything that I can do here. That's a really good time for them to begin to look around and begin to think, what's my next challenge, right? What does that look like for me to broaden my horizons? What skills can I bring? So I'm not sure that it's always linear, but I do think that it's important for people to constantly be Doing some kind of self check on where do I want to be now, right? What is my goal for this moment in this context, in this part of my life, and make sure that it is always aligned with their values and principles about who are the kinds of people that they want to work with, right? Is the scope of work a real reach for me, and therefore I need to be a learner of real hard skills in order to do my work, right? Or is it the kind of thing where I want to? think more critically and less operationally, right? And then maybe I want to go to something more operational and less critical thinking piece. I mean, I think that the best professionals are those who've had the most exposure to a vast and wide number of different kinds of issues. So what are things that people need to be successful in terms of building their careers?
0: Or even what are the qualities that makes a really great executive. Mm,
1: That's a great question. I think a lot of it is very, very organic. I mean, I think some people actually have it Mm -hmm. and other people have to compensate for it and and can get there and some people don't. I think good executives are people who are always willing to learn. I think they're good executives are people who are willing to be thoughtful in the way that they guide and teach, but not to impose themselves in a consistent way as an authority figure at all times, because that doesn't lead to a collaborative leadership model. And therefore you end up alienating your staff or isolating your staff. And at the same time, I think a good executive really has to have the ability to make very strong decisions to hire and fire. And I think good executives are inspirational Either internally, right, an an inspirational manager is equally as important to me to identify as an inspirational community organizer. Mm -hmm. The best CEOs are people who have both the external facing piece and the internal facing piece. They're the people who have both the content knowledge and the mechanics, Right. right, to be able to do those things. And oftentimes... CEOs are forced by nature of the organization that they're in and the strategic direction of the organization to choose one over the other or to do a lot more of one rather than the other. And then organizations find themselves sort of scrambling about how to make up those kinds of things.
0: Well, it's hard to do that, right? If you're always out and doing things, right? It's a very different role to be a CEO that has a COO than to be a CEO that has somebody in the office that's dealing with those operational day-to-day things. And then you can be more of that inspirational, voice-of, face-of, board, relational figure when there's somebody who you know can take care of that. When you're filling both those roles, that not only is more difficult, but definitely is different skill set. And maybe it's you're filling both of those roles at a lower level in a smaller organization and then choose one side or the other, right? Whichever way you think in a larger organization, you can better break?
1: I learned that when I was the ED of the North American Alliance for Jewish Youth, I learned so much and made so many mistakes because I was in charge of everything. And it wasn't a very big organization. It was a million, a million and a half. And we had one, one and a half employees in addition to me at any one time. But when you're that proximal to every single issue that happens in the organization, the hiring, the firing, the visioning, the budgeting, the strategic planning, the partnership building. Every problem that happens. (laughs) Every problem that happens, right? When the copier breaks, it's on you. And when you have to go and sit with a funder and ask them for half a million dollars, that's also on you. Mm -hmm. And so I think being the ED of a small organization is one of the most complicated things to do because you have limited resources, and all of the work still needs to get done. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, I had a tremendous amount to learn at UJA Federation, where I was a very teeny tiny piece of an enormous operation. And I had lots to learn there also about how do you navigate all of the different departments who were filled with resources, and where there were many things that were available to me to learn and to help and to guide. And how to use those to the best of my advantage and to be able to navigate all of those things to make myself known, right? To be able to say, don't forget about me. I also want to have a piece in the shared resources that are available in order to make my project or my idea well known or as strong as it can be. And then still
0: being able to advocate for yourself is not always easy.
1: Being able to advocate for yourself is critical and not just when you're a small fish in a big pond, when you are the head of an organization, being able to advocate for the organization Mm -hmm. is key. When you are a younger employee, being able to advocate for yourself to say, I can take more on, to say... This is too much for me to be able to say, I want to learn, help me, take me with you, guide me, grow me, those kinds of things. All of that falls under that. How can I advocate for myself? And, you know, so Michelle, I go back to a lot of those issues. Success, I think in any of these constructs is really all about our ability to be very keenly aware of who we are in the particular context that we're in and to really know what our strengths are, what our weaknesses are, and where we have inflection points that will be helpful to us to either grow and develop or to step aside. I think those kinds of things are important too. And when we talk to candidates, we listen for things like that. So we ask them questions that will help us to determine, have they run an organization that's the right scope and size to be able to take this next step? Have they done the following things in the three areas of core competency that the board or the CEO is looking for in their next hire? And also, we're looking for how do they manage themselves in the search process, because that's a great indicator to us of their emotional intelligence, of the way in which they work and interact with other people, right? We are sort of the first line of conversations on behalf of the organization, -hmm. So, it's very important for us to be able to evaluate not just people's skills and experiences, but we're also thinking about how people are managing themselves through the process, because that's a very important window or indicator how they'll manage themselves in situations when they're with funders, right? When they're trying to sell but not oversell, right? When they're trying to say, hmm, I don't know the answer to that question, but here's how I might figure that out, right? We're listening very carefully for things like that, because that kind of data collection for us is critical. Our clients ask us for sort of a well-rounded version off the page of the resume of who these people are.
0: Right. Do you ever give candidates that don't get the job helpful feedback or any conversation of, we really loved you for X, Y, or Z. And, you know, I think if you could grow PG and F you know, we'd love to see you back here. We'll keep your resume because, you know, you, this wasn't the right fit, but we can tell that you're great. One of the things that always frustrates me, right? When I started this process, I interviewed for a job I really wanted. I didn't get a second interview, and I asked the guy, I was like, hey, just, you know, some honest feedback, anything. He's like, oh, I honestly couldn't tell you why. I'm like, okay, fine. <laughs> like, to try and glean some of that from people is always so difficult. I don't know if at this level, with you know these kind of refined candidates where you really narrow down the pool to the best of the best and they have to choose one, even if there is some feedback or advice to even be able to give these other people.
1: Absolutely. I think one of the hardest parts of our job is being able to learn to say no. We spend a lot of time thinking, how do we tell people no with a modicum of kindness, but 100% of truth and authenticity? Because If you say no full stop to somebody, the conversation is over. Mm -hmm. But if I come to say to somebody and say, it's not going to be you for this position, and let me tell you why, I think there's an opportunity for me to help them to grow, to say, you did a really great job in this. Sometimes I'll say to them, you didn't do anything wrong. You actually handled this masterfully and you have the skills, but you're not the right fit for them, right? They thought somebody was a better fit for them. And I think that in some ways is very hard for candidates to swallow and they think it's a throwaway, but oftentimes it comes down to two candidates who have equal but different skills. And search committees really have to use their gut and sort of the sum total of all of the experiences that they've had with these candidates who many times have gone through a process that they've met with the search committee multiple times, they've met with constituencies in the communities, they've met with other board members, they've met with funders, and It's our job to be able to present all of that data, plus references, plus our thoughts on the candidates, how they process sort of through process, and for the search committees to take it very seriously, which most of them do. They take the the dossiers of information that we give them about their candidates very, very seriously and are asking very thoughtful questions. And on the issue of fit, sometimes it comes down to them going back to sort of the basics, right? What did you tell us you wanted where did you tell us you wanted the organization to go? Mm-hmm. Where did you say you want to see the organization 3 to 5 years? What were the priorities for this organization in order to thrive and develop? Right, go back to the job description that we developed based on all of those conversations and relook at these candidates with that lens. Mm-hmm. That's very very important because I will say sometimes search committees fall in love And they forget to think about Mm -hmm. what are the skills. And they're only on, God, that person told an amazing story when they first walked in the room and they forget about the competencies, right? Or somebody is so competent, but they don't have that sort of inspirational leadership quality that we were hoping for. Which are the pieces that are coachable? Which are the pieces that you can train and develop? right? And which are the pieces, quite frankly, that you can live without? Most search committees like to feel like they're falling in love with their CEO, that this is their person, right. that they can do the skills, they feel inspired by them, they're excited around this person, they, they crave additional conversations with them, they're look, looking forward to it. And I think that's very, very important when you think about how important the process is to hiring somebody, right. that the process helps them. It's not about weeding out people. It helps them to remain true to what they identified as where they want the organization to go. So when we tell candidates no, sometimes the answer is no, and you have all of these great skills and qualities, and they felt that somebody would be able to get them where they wanted to go better, and that your skills and qualities will be able to get another organization that is close. yes, Yes, exactly right.
0: Well, listen. I could keep talking to you for much, much longer, <laughs> but I want to be mindful of your time. And I'm going to loop back to to my closing question. You know, your personal journey. You have a full time job. Your husband has a full time job. You have four children. How do you do it? How do you stay balanced and sane? And your clo- you know, kids clothed in bed and fed, <laughs> and and this well left? How do you remain grounded and uh, and balanced? So thank you for saying those assumptions overtly
1: (laughs) that, that my children are not eating candy for breakfast and that they actually have two shoes on when they go to school. I really function on the notion that sometimes good enough is actually just good enough. And I can't be perfect for everybody at all times. You know, as a mom, you have a responsibility to yourself, to the people in your family, to your children. To communities, to volunteer opportunities, and obviously to growing myself as a professional. And I think that there is no magic bullet for any of it. So I think that my motto of trying to recognize that sometimes good enough actually is excellent. Right. Sort of keeps me moving forward. I will also tell you, I absolutely love my job. I feel grateful every day that I get to do this work, that I get to be involved in helping people to hire talent who are going to make significant impact in the world through the organizations and particularly in the Jewish community. And so that's very helpful to me. And and I will say, sometimes my kids don't come first on a day-to-day basis. And while I'm always thinking about them and what's best for them, and a lot of my work is for them, and I think it's a good model for me, for my kids, to see that I work hard and that I'm committed and devoted and love the work. I think there's always sort of a nag in my mind. Am I the best parent that I can possibly be? And the answer is I'm not sure. And you might want to check back in 15 years.
0: (laughs) Right. I
1: don't think that I have any magic answer to any of that. It's complicated. It's messy. It's busy, but I think treating everybody kindly as you walk through a complicated life is very important. Showering your children with love, I think is equally as important. And trying to get as many things done into one day is important. And the answer to that is you'll never get anything. You'll never get everything done. Right. And so you just have to realize that sometimes good enough is actually excellent.
0: Well, that's excellent advice. <laughs> and that's an excellent attitude to have. <laughs> well, wonderful. Thank you so much. There has to be a part two. I will be in contact with you later this year because there's so much more on this. And I think after my conversation with Golly Cooks and and a few other people that kind of build on the same notion of leadership and executive service and the career trajectory for Jewish professionals. I think we'll we'll have a few more things to dive into. So I really appreciate your time tonight. Thank you. Thank you. When Dara and I started our conversation, we talked about her career path and that she started setting to be a rabbi because she knew of her career goals and thought that, that was the way to get there. She now finds herself helping place executives in Jewish communal institutions. And from what she described, probably not the career trajectory she saw for herself when she filled out that application to be a rabbi. From what she told me, it seems like Dara never had to look for a job, but these opportunities found her. And in some sense, that was her career lattice was taking those opportunities that came to her. If you're in a place where you're thinking of your career lattice, Maybe it's time to do some mapping for yourself and decide where it is that you'd actually like to go. And if those goals are financially motivated, personally motivated, and if you truly understand what it is that you do well, that you do better than anyone else, and how you can express that in an environment that you love, that maybe it's not the top, but it's your top and where you can be the best expression of your professional self, whichever path you take to get there. Now for those organizations that are facing an issue of an executive level employee leaving. What Dara teaches us and what she talks about is the first thing they do in their work is think about what issues you're trying to solve. What skills are you looking for in that person? And how will you know when your hire is successful? And if you're interviewing for jobs, ask that question How will I know if you choose to hire me that I am successful in this job? What does success look like for this position in this organization? See what kind of information you can glean from that question as to whether you'll be happy doing this work. The last thing I wanted to circle back on from our conversation was that everyone is growing all of the time and people make mistakes. And sometimes they're big enough and often enough that you have to let that person go. And sometimes it's just not a good fit. The more that you're able to work with someone's learning curve and teach and mentor and bring somebody to a place of growing within their potential, then the field as a whole will be better off. And of course... As Dara said so eloquently, sometimes good enough is excellent. So try not to be too hard on yourselves we have our first bonus episode. I attended the Rutterman Summit on Philanthropy, Power, and Democracy in the Jewish Community of the 21st Century, which was housed at Hebrew College on April 2nd. I have some wonderful reflections from that day, but unfortunately, I can only push two hours of content a month, the free media hosting plan. So that bonus episode, about 10 minutes, will be located on our website, it's whoyouknowpodcast.wordpress.com. Slash the podcast, and that's where you'll find our bonus episode. This is Michelle W. Malkin for It's Who You Know the podcast, and I look forward to many more conversations about what it's like to lead in our Jewish community. We'll let Dara's youngest son, Charlie, see us out for the night. Bye. Like this episode? Have a comment or a great suggestion for our next interview? Contact us through our website
1: at It's Who You Know podcast. or on the It's Who You Know Facebook page. As always, subscribe, rate, and review this podcast so that others can find us. It's Who You Know, the podcast.